Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. This week, we are talking about our children's health, or more specifically, how we can reduce the risk of some of the most common diseases that will face them these days. Did you know that half of all babies born today will develop allergies? Up to a third will become asthmatic or suffer from eczema? These are some pretty shocking numbers, and it's something that I know a lot of parents want to do something about. So to talk about how we handle this, what we can do, practical suggestions and all, I have Michelle Henning, the co-author of the book Grow Healthy Babies, which she wrote with her husband, Dr. Victor Henning. We will dive into the why behind the rise in these diseases and some of the things that you can do as parents to help just reduce the risk. There's no elimination, but we can at least try and do what we can, right? So join me now as I welcome Michelle Henning and we talk about how to grow healthy babies. I would like to welcome Michelle Henning. She is a graduate of the Irish Institute of Nutrition and Health. Her articles have been featured in Wired Magazine, Pathways to Family Wellness, Baby Center, and more. And for us, she is the author of Grow Healthy Babies, the evidence-based guide to a healthy pregnancy and reducing your child's risk of asthma, eczema, and allergies, which she wrote with her husband, Dr. Victor Henning, who is also an award-winning scientist, fellow of the Royal Royal Society of Arts and founder of Mendeley, a leading scientific collaboration platform. Pardon me. He's been published in peer-reviewed scientific journals and has been featured in the New York Times and The Guardian. Thank you so much for being here, Michelle. Thank you for having me. It this book is, I have been able to go through it, and I think it's just such a needed resource for parents that are starting out because it is scientifically based. As you say in it, I mean, there's the list at the end of scientific studies looked at is quite intense, to say the least. I'm not sure anyone's going through all, what is it, 660 of them? That is uh, it, yes, 660, <laughs> yes. So it's, but we're going to talk about the book in depth. I want to talk about all that stuff. But before we get there, how did you get interested in this topic, how was it that you came about suddenly deciding to look at prenatal health more generally, but then specifically these kind of chronic diseases, the asthma, eczema, and allergies in particular? Well, I mean, I think the the interest in food and nutrition for me started really early in life because my father is a chef. So I grew up surrounded by great cooking and a big, big passion for food, like good food. And he was trained in French cooking. So it was very like buttery, rich, gorgeous food. And we had a restaurant and a fish shop. You know, I was always exposed to gutting a fish, plucking a pheasants, you know, I totally um, immersed in this since I was very, very small. And then it was sort of Gradual, as I grew, I started getting passionate more and more to learn about food. And then when I was about 10, my mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So this was a lot to take on when I was a kid. I didn't really understand. But as I grew, I became more and more interested in how the body worked because I wanted to know more about why was my mom sick? What happened, you know? Um, And then... Finally, when I reached uh, secondary school, high school, uh, I started uh, studying biology and I became obsessed then. And once I entered food science, it's like everything came together because this was my childhood with food 
and then the science of how it all worked and then the health connection with my mother and that was the biggest spark for me and then I went on to study nutrition in college and that's sort of the start of my journey. So I mean I'm how is your mom doing is she? She's okay you know it's been a I mean it's it's a long time now but she's done quite well I I think she's uh she's she eats a good diet. My dad cooks for her still, right, every day. So she's eating really good food, just just fresh food, yeah. right? And uh, she's doing okay. She has her her ups and downs, and oh. she's been in hospital sometimes. And it's a journey, right? It's it's yeah. how it goes. But it makes sense that that would completely influence the way in which you look at the world and look at food and everything else. So you have that background. Why prenatally? And why these specific chronic diseases for you? Because I mean, there's so many different things, right? Like we hear people worried about their kids, you know, risk of childhood cancer or other diseases. And, you know, this is a very specific one. And we'll get to talking about those three in a minute. But, you know, what was that interest that sparked with that? For me, I actually do want to get into all of the childhood diseases. And if I could, I probably would. I'm I'm planning to do another book for Grow Healthy Children. And I'm also planning a cookbook because I do want to just change the world and the food system. And I care about all of it. And we do cover some of these issues, like uh, statistics on childhood cancer reduction. But what really sparked these ones is that I suffer from asthma. I have eczema. I have allergies and I've been quite allergic since I was very young I was that kid that would get a new deodorant or product and break out in hives I always had rashes there was always something going on and I tried everything when I was younger and nothing was working and then I when I studied nutrition I switched to my diet and this had a, a huge impact on reducing the inflammation in my body I cleared my rosacea on my skin And then I met my husband and he has extremely severe eczema. He is covered. You know, when he was a baby, his parents had to to hold him down at nighttime because he was scratching himself to to bleed. He has extremely bad asthma and he has a very, very severe egg allergy. So when I met him and I was like, this is the man I love and I want to spend my life with and I want to have a baby. And I thought, oh no, how are we going to have a child that's healthy? what are we going to do? This is a disaster. If we put our genes together, this could really go badly. And I talked to my doctor and they said, well, I'm really sorry, but there's a 75% increased risk that your child will inherit these problems. And we are both pretty determined people and very strong-minded. And uh, so my husband being a scientist and me having the nutrition background, we just decided to sort of not accept that and not say that these odds were definite. We said, this this can't be possible, right? There has to be something we can do to influence this. So for just our own benefit, we did a lot of research. Um, I was careful about what I was eating, making sure I was finding what was right for me and for the immune system development in our child. And we put everything together and we then had our child. And later after I'd had her, I thought, we should put this in a book because there's nothing out there. Mm-hmm. It, so can I ask, does your child have allergies or eczema? Or <laughs> <anything>? <laughs> no. What's the outcome of this 
this one. Just jump ahead here. Tell me. Grow Healthy Baby's prototype. Um, she is, you know, she's fine. She's got nothing. I'm so grateful. I, it's very hard to, uh, to explain how relieved I am, especially because I put myself out there with a book as well. But she's uh, she's nearly seven. So uh, she's got no no skin problems she's no asthma she has no food allergies she can eat what she wants um and she hasn't had any major health problems we've been very fortunate she's never needed an antibiotic so far i mean the time will come right she'll catch some infection and that's fine but um yeah we're very lucky she's she's turned out okay I love that you said earlier, and I just want to highlight it because I can hear people thinking, well, great, your sample size of one and whatnot. Yeah, but what you anecdotal. Said, right? <laughs> but what you said before, which was good, is that you talked about doing these things to reduce risk. This yeah. isn't absolute. And this is something that I always battle with in getting people to understand about science is you can do all the things, everything they say, you're never reducing your risk to zero. And it is always just looking at that reduced risk. So even if you did have a daughter with an allergy or eczema or anything, it wouldn't negate the science that you talk about in the book. I mean, it's it's great that it worked out, you know, in this case, but I think people always have to keep that in mind and that we're always playing a game of odds. And yeah. I actually love that you have the discussion of, of risk, how to understand the risk ratios in the book there. One of the appendices has that in there. So it's a lovely little primer for people to understand what we're actually talking about here. So, but I had to ask about that. So let's let's go in a bit to these issues here because you know, one of the things I know I can see cropping up already is you read asthma, eczema, allergies. And as you point out in the book at the beginning, these are incredibly common. They are, you know, almost a staple of childhood at a certain point here as we look at their prevalence and how far they're going. And maybe it's because they've become so prevalent, but it seems that they're kind of treated as eh, not a big deal. Why, you know, I've had people go to doctors, their kid has eczema. Oh, yeah, throw some cream on it. Not a big deal. This is nothing you need to worry about. Oh, they've got an allergy. Yeah, they'll probably grow out of it. But, you know, if they don't, oh, well, not a big deal. If it's anaphylactic, that may be a little bit. There's obviously more concern there. Asthma, yeah, it sucks. Get a puffer and, you know, just be careful with what you do. And I think that's created a culture where, we don't see these as serious issues. These are not, you know, it's not childhood cancer. It's not something that may be more um, devastating in in a short term and potentially a long term. So why should people care? Why should they look at this and say, well, I need to reduce my risk for this? What is What is really happening with these diseases is really kind of the chronic diseases that they are. And what does this mean in terms of long-term health for kids and why parents maybe want to start taking a look a little bit earlier? Well, I mean, that's really interesting um, to think of it that way. And I mean, for me, when I see the statistics, that it's predicted that more than half of all children will have at least one of these conditions in the next few years. And I'm thinking about the impact on life, right? So lifespan, health span, right? What kind of quality of life? So if you have, I mean, I think eczema really impacts your your daily life because of the itching. It can impact your sleep. 
and it, it's 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 terrible to suffer from eczema and to feel this uncomfortable crawling itch in your skin um I'm, i imagine that for i know my husband like there was that self-consciousness as well with these cuts and scars all over his skin Asthma, I discovered, there's 180,000 deaths per year in the world from asthma, which was a big shock for me. I suppose I didn't think about it. I didn't either. I, I never even would have thought of that number being that high. I knew maybe once in a while people don't have a puffer. It would be a rarity, not that common. No, it's a lot more common than I realized, but also with allergies, right? So if these are increasing and what if, I mean, anaphylaxis is increasing as well. And this is so scary. I have my cousin's kid was born with this and it, it terrifies her all the time. And to be so afraid that your kid will accidentally share food with another child or be close to another kid that has something that could potentially kill your child. I feel like we have to, sort of scream stop this is enough we can't be raising our kids like this and have them scared and and you scared I mean, who wants to live in constant fear that their child might die because of a school treat or going to someone else on a play date this is no quality for any parent or child and if there's a way that we can reduce that and maybe like you say we can't fully eradicate the allergy but what if we could take it down from anaphylactic to a milder allergy where they get a stomach upset. And if you could follow these tips and have a child that maybe, like I said, has a mild allergy rather than a life-threatening one, I, for me, it feels absolutely worth it for quality of life. And then also to remember that when we have these conditions, it's a sign that there's something else going on. This is coming from a microbial imbalance. And we know now that your microbes impact your epigenetic expression. So these may lead to other diseases. This may lead to earlier death in life. We don't know yet for sure, but we do know that there is a problem in the gut and therefore this can affect the expression of genes and who knows where this may lead. So ideally, let's get our kids healthier. And go, you know, we're going to get to the microbiome because it's such a crucial part of this book. And as you highlighted, it's such a crucial part of our understanding of health more generally, not just physical health, but mental health and, and everything else. But, you know, what you said about schools, I, I just go back to remembering even just if I age myself a bit here, you know, almost four decades ago of going to school and we had a couple kids with asthma and a couple kids with allergies. But they weren't severe and it wasn't the way I see it today. The common classrooms can't have peanuts, this, that, the other in it. It was, yeah, they just had to stay away from it. And that was going to be what it was. And I think part of our, our struggle as parents too comes from this generational shift because we can't help but go back to our own experience. So I hear allergy and go back to my grade school with my couple friends that had stuff. And it wasn't a big deal. I had peanut butter and jam sandwiches almost every day because who doesn't love them? Um, but then, you know, if I think about that today, I want my kids to have that same. I want it to be easy for me. And so we also see a push, I think, of families resisting the care for others, which adds to the stress burden of the parent of a child who has an allergy because, you know, schools aren't 
necessarily taking as much care. Um, we may have banned things, but people don't check it. There's a lot of places I have, you know, families I work with who have to be incredibly careful about the daycares they send their kids to, and they have to pick them based on how on it they are with respect to allergies because of their kids' struggles there. And, you know, when you talk about the parental effect, it may not affect us right away, but I bet you it starts to affect everyone else and other people you may love. And so I think about it in terms of trying to get people caring. What would you want if your child was the parent of a child with a severe allergy, which is the rate it's going would be a very likely event to have happen. Do you want your child having to live with that anxiety, that struggle, that everything? Or can we shift things both at a personal level and a societal level to better understand what it means to have these allergies and the care we all need to take for it. Yeah, I mean, when I, I mean, I live in Norway, I'm Irish, but uh, we live in Norway now. And oddly enough, there's no allergies in my child's class, which shocked me. I don't actually know the statistics for Norway, funnily enough. Um, And I was really surprised because they bring in birthday food here um, and there was no requests for any allergy-free food. Um, I'm not sure if this is common. There's definitely kids developing allergies here. There's a lot of problems with asthma and eczema also. You know, things are changing in Norway too. But it was quite interesting to see that because in Ireland, I'm aware of many of my friends who are experiencing these problems and this like trauma of worrying about your kid going to school every day. And we should be worrying about if they've had a good experience at school, if they've enjoyed learning, if they've made friends, we shouldn't be worried whether they're going to come home alive. You know, it shouldn't be a thought. And it's interesting. I'm the mother of a child with an allergy and it wasn't in, in my family side at all. We, you know, had no allergies. My husband had eczema, horrible eczema as a kid and that, you know, blistering coming off and everything. And um, my daughter was born with a milk protein allergy, which luckily my midwives discovered at, you know, day two was it was so apparent. It was just brutal. But, um, you know, we removed it and it's not a problem. And we're lucky it's not she's not anaphylactic. So I don't have that stress. But I remember being younger, not knowing whether she was anaphylactic and going out and, you know, you hit the park and someone would offer her a goldfish cracker and having to like run in and be like, no, don't touch it. (laughs) You feel like that leaping into action there because she was too young to know. Yes. Of course. How can they know? I mean, exactly. It's a huge burden on a two-year-old worrying about what food they can eat. I mean, actually the funny thing is at this age, you're trying to encourage them to eat lots of different foods. Right. Everything. goes against everything parents are trying to achieve at this age. I know it does. And then my son had eczema for a bit. And actually, I mean, we'll get into it when we talk about it, but we did change diet and removed it. But I, the pain of seeing him bleeding from scratching areas so much, like it's horrible to watch. So just from a personal perspective, I can share it just because you may not have it in your family. I can tell you that for those families that do, these are not nothing diseases. They are highly effective. And asthma nowadays, I think, has come up even more with COVID 
around and knowing that it's such a pre-existing condition that can lead to worse outcomes, you know, it was never just COVID. All respiratory infections are of greater risk for children who struggle with asthma. And so we have to be careful at thinking that, you know, they exist in this bubble and they're not a big deal because so much else in the world that goes on around it, like you talked about the potential for later disease. Well, it may just raise your susceptibility to other diseases or infections that, and then raise the risk of more complications from them as it goes. So it's certainly something that I think people need to be aware of. So let's get to what this is all about, which is the microbiome, uh, which you do a great job of really breaking down for people, which I love to read because I felt like it in the book, there's there's a whole section on the microbiome at the beginning. It's like the foundation laid out. You have to understand this before everything else we say makes sense. So can you give us a brief breakdown, just because I know it's all here, but for everyone listening, you know, what is the microbiome for anyone who doesn't happen to know already? Um, why is a healthy microbiome so important? And how do babies develop their microbiome? So what is this process? Because you know, we know there's huge variability. I had uh, Dr. Megan Azad on a few episodes ago talking about her work with the microbiome and, you know, her charts, because they were looking at it with respect to non-nutritive sweeteners and the effect mm -hmm. on the microbiome. But there is huge variability in infant microbiome, both across ages, but even within ages based on experiences. So clearly it's not something that's standardized amongst babies. So knowing how it kind of, what are these factors that develop um, for that, especially in pregnancy? Yeah. I mean, first they thought that in the womb, it was a sterile environment. Then they did some studies. Then they thought that potentially there was some exposure. Now they're not sure. There's a big debate at the moment whether the child is exposed to any bacteria in uh, uterus. But what we do know is that the majority occurs from the moment of birth onwards. So your exposure on like the type of birth mode. So whether you're born vaginally or through C-section, but even things like being born through emergency C-section compared to a planned one can make a huge difference because there are hormones activated during contractions. So say you go through birth, um, you start in a normal labor, all the right kind of signaling gets sent to the baby and to their developing system. And then if you have an emergency C-section, this is completely different outcome than if it was a pre-planned one that was a couple of weeks earlier. So many changes occur in this time. So when you're born by C-section, for example, you will pick up the bacteria in the environment of the operating room and the people around or the skin microbiome of your mother if you get placed on their chest. But if you're born vaginally, you're going to pick up all this wonderful bacteria on the way out. And uh, we call them like uh, old friends because we've been living with these. Like the immune system developed, I think, 2.6 million years ago. It started to develop. And we, we learned to coexist with all these bacteria as friends. The majority of bacteria in the world are friendly. And I think we're sold a lie when we hear about bacteria as you know, demonized. Most of them are good guys. There are a few that are really nasty 
and we want to avoid them. And of course, we can take our precautions with our hand washing and uh, proper care with preparing food. But most of the bacteria around us is really critical for our health and for our development and is involved in everything. So if you think about the human genome, so your, your DNA, there are, I think, something like 22,000 genes. But there's not enough human genome to carry out all the activities you need in your body. But the the gut, I think it has, oh, I think there's uh, 8 million. You know what? I, I wrote it down somewhere. Something like 8 billion? 8 million bacterial genes. There we go. Came to my memory. <laughs> and... Uh, so if you compare like 22,000 versus 8 million, your bacteria are doing most of the things in your body. They're in charge. They're running the show. They're connected to your brain via your vagus nerve. They're sending messages all the time, telling your brain what to do, your body what to do. They, they call the gut the second brain for this reason. They're involved in so many processes we don't even know yet. I mean, this is the infancy of microbiome research, which is really exciting. 70% um, of your immune cells are in your gut. So, so much of, of how we are as humans, our health, is sitting in our stomach and this is an extremely not glamorous part of our health system i remember studying nutrition first of all and it was a long time ago and there wasn't that much microbiome research we were just told you know digestion 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 and i thought this is so dull like i'm just talking about <laughs> poo all the time i want something more glamorous i want to study the brain you know it seems so exciting and now, like, fast forward 20 years, I'm all about the stomach. I'm, I want to know everything because I realize it's all connected. So, that, like, there's 40 trillion bacteria in and on us. And they are friends, mostly our friends. And they keep each other in balance. So if we take care of them, they take care of us. They are digesting our food for us. They are regulating our immune system. When a baby is in the womb, the mother's body has to be in this immune state called Th2. So this is an immune cell, a T helper cell, because otherwise the body would reject the baby. So it has to be like this. And the baby picks up the cue and then is also in this Th2 state. This is all necessary and all absolutely fine. But when the baby is born and they're exposed to these bacteria on the way out the vaginal tract, and that's why a vaginal birth is ideal if possible right not always possible and there are ways that they're trying to rectify this now but so they pick up this uh, bacteria and it triggers a seesaw effect and it triggers this th1 system and they balance each other out by regulating each other so if you're activating both th1 and th2 they kind of keep each other in check and they keep the immune system really healthy if this doesn't happen and you don't get a vaginal birth, then the chance is that you can end up at this Th2 state. And this is where you increase the risk of allergies, asthma, eczema. This stays in this inflamed state. The body then starts to look to attack, you know, its own or like invaders. It thinks that like pollen is an invader. It didn't get that trigger of this bacteria that it needed. So it looks for random things like peanuts and it thinks that it's an attacker and it's like yes I now have a purpose in life but we really needed to give it 
good, friendly bacteria. I love that idea of the purpose in life, because that actually makes so much sense when you think about the bacteria in our body, because all of them have to have a purpose. So if they're lacking it for whatever reason, then they're going to find one just like we do, right? We find unhealthy purposes in life. You think about all our bad habits. They're usually in response to us trying to handle situations, find purpose, or just cope with negative situations. And I think our bacteria are no different that way. So that's a really interesting way to look at it. So we all need a purpose in life. (laughs) They say like for longevity, one of the things that you need is purpose. And so do our bacteria. You know, they're just like us. They're part of us. They also need purpose. That's such an, I never would have thought of it that way, but I actually love that analogy. So thank you. (laughs) Um, Okay. So when we think about the microbiome, And especially in pregnancy, because, well, let's go back a minute here, because as you said, the baby microbiome is set really from birth on, and there's the debate about what's happening. So why the heck should parents care what happens in pregnancy for their microbiome and everything? Because their microbiome regulates their immune system, which passes on epigenetic expression. So you have your genes that you're born with. And we were told before that they were set in stone. That's it. This is your DNA. This is your risk in life. Fortunately, more science was done. And now we know about epigenetics, which is the expression of these genes. So that epigenetic influence comes from the food we eat, from the environment around us, how much we move. Everything influences the expression of our genes, which basically means whether we turn the gene on or off. So different things like actually lactobacillus again and bifidobacteria turn on anti-inflammatory genes. And when you're pregnant, you're constantly influencing the genes that you will pass on. And those can be passed on then for generations. So what you do in pregnancy could impact your great, great grandkids and what kind of diseases they get because you're turning your genes on and off all the time. We are, it's actually a positive thing. I feel, I feel quite, especially being, uh, born someone who suffers with all of these inflammatory conditions, I feel quite hopeful when I hear about epigenetics because I feel like, okay, I've had a bad week. I've been eating stuff I really shouldn't, but I'm going to switch those genes back off now and I'm going to eat you know, better and I'm going to move more, get out in nature. And I know that I have the power to change and influence my health better and my daughters and all these things. For me, it feels really powerful that you have actually an ability to break cycles. And I was thinking about this a lot before I came on here because we talk about, you know, on your website about children and behavior and like gentle parenting and how we break cycles of how we were raised. And then now we're making a change and we're going to, we're going to put a lot of work into changing this expression of emotion. Well, this is just the, the bodily, the biological way of changing the expression of your genes. So we too can also influence this. You know, you say this and what I go straight back to is a conversation I had with Dr. Greer Kirschenbaum on the brain development during pregnancy and what happens. And she talks about uh, mat- matricins. I'm obviously pronouncing that wrong and I apologize. Um, enunciations and me do not go well together. But um, she talked about how the brain during pregnancy is particularly susceptible to change during that time. And it makes me wonder, 
And we've seen this during various periods is that neurological stress responses, everything. We have these periods in our lives where our brain is more plastic. Um, we're more malleable and we're able to change with that time. Do you think, or is there any research that pregnancy is a time in which the gut may be more malleable that way as well? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I haven't specifically gone into the influence of it with the brain, but I have been following a scientist that is going into this. So if anybody wanted to follow him, so there's a wonderful uh, professor, John Cryan. He's based in Cork in Southwest Ireland, and they are one of the leading research labs on microbiome research. And he wrote a book, I think, Psychobiotic Revolu uh, Revolution, I think it's called. And he's all about the gut and how it influences the brain. And I did see recently that they had done a huge study on the impact of stress during pregnancy and brain development in children. And then like anxiety later, um, I did see they've done another one with just pregnancy diet as well and how this impacts the brain and the gut. So for sure, that's a great resource for anybody who wants to dig deeper. Um, I know that with uh, brain development uh, during pregnancy, the fats is something that, that we focused on because this is something that we could influence with diet as well and making sure that people got the right fats. Um, I think for me, the greatest concern was, I think everybody's heard omega-3 fats are good, right? I mean, we've heard this story a lot now. Everybody's getting the message. They should eat fish. But then um, with vegans, I mean, what about vegans, right? Because there's a message going around that they can get omega-3 DHA from chia seeds and flax seeds and that's not true and i feel so angry because people have a right to choose their diet and especially you know when the people are thinking about the environmental impact that if they're given the wrong message and this impacts the health of their child i get really angry about it because they should be given fair information so they can make the best choices based on their beliefs and the health of themselves and their child so the problem is that there's a, a conversion issue from plant omega-3 into DHA, which is what the brain needs. But there's a really simple solution. <laughs> Vegans can just take an algae supplement and then they get the DHA. And they don't have to worry about, they don't have to have a fish oil. They don't have to, to go against their, their beliefs. And I think this is really important that that gets out there, the algae algae oil, which is funnily what fish are eating to make DHA and EPA as well. Fish so, don't, are not born with DHA and EPA either. They have to get it from their environment. So go to the source. That's so interesting. And I love that, that it is. It's you think about going to that source there and that's where we go. So in pregnancy, that's a good one. So let's think here though, because one of my things that came up when I read the book, and as you know, I already, I, I kind of brought it up with you earlier in our emails here, but I'm going to make you answer it now because I, I need to know. In pregnancy in particular, mm -hmm. I can read all this. I know it all sounds great. I'm on board. Some people may not be, but I think they'd be swayed by the type of evidence you provide for the healthy diet. I was one of those people that suffered morning sickness so brutally that I couldn't keep anything really down. It was especially with my second pregnancy up to the 20 week mark. I was a wreck and I couldn't keep my prenatal vitamins down. I couldn't keep basically anything outside of like white bread was 
all I sustained on. And it was, that was it. And it's gets panicky to read what's happening um, during that developmental period for so long and knowing the idea that crap, what did I do wrong with this? And I know those feelings of stress. And I also luckily know the science that that's not it. But what do we say to people? And what are the effects of this, you know, severe morning sickness? And some people continue throughout pregnancy with this. So what are the things that we can do? Like we hear all this supplementation, all this stuff that we can do. What about when people can't? What's happening to the microbiome at that point? And what are the things that they might be able to do to either find foods that might be more beneficial that they can tolerate? Or if they can't, what do they do after the fact to try and make up for this? Because we know it is malleable to a degree. It's as you said, you know, you can have your bad week of eating stuff and then you're going to turn back on that epigenetics. So under the hope of knowing that it's not all lost, what advice do you have for people who have been in that situation? No, of course, it's not all lost. I mean, it's a, it's a process through life. I mean, but the thing is, even after your child is born, there will still be weeks that they influence and everything they do from that moment will influence. You are not 100% responsible for everything. Just like with parenting, there are days when we shout and we lose our mind and we, we do things wrong or we just put them in front of a screen. We just... We are not responsible for every single moment because we are just human. We can't, you know. I remember cycling through Amsterdam. I was pregnant with my daughter when we lived in Amsterdam. And I was doing the best I could. And I thought I was going, okay, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then I was sitting in traffic on my bike. And there's this car in front of me pumping fumes in my face. And I was so upset. I thought, oh, my God, fine particle pollution. And I thought, all the work I'm doing. And, and I went home to Victor and I was crying. And then we just talked and I thought, you know, I can't control that. I can't stop cars driving and I'm not going to get off my bike. I like cycling. I'm just going to focus on what I can do. Because we can't. And also, nothing's a guarantee, right? You can still do everything and life. That's all I can say. Life happens. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, so many things impact health, right? Because your husband's sperm health also has an impact. It's not just you, you know, and you shouldn't be taking all the blame either. You know, his health and nutrition beforehand, even when he was doing as a teenager, ultimately has an effect. So it's about just saying, okay, now I know these things. What can I do? And for us, the most important thing writing the book was to understand the microbiome and the immune system so that you can make decisions based on your life, knowing how things will impact. So there's no ideal diet. There's no one thing that's the healthiest thing in the world for you. Everybody has a different microbiome. I mean, they found that even with twins, they can share sometimes as little as 30% microbial diversity even though they've born together, grew up together, everything. Mm. So what you do and what works for you is what really matters. I mean, for me, I had I had pretty bad nausea at the beginning. Broccoli was my enemy for some reason. If I even saw broccoli, I thought I was going to die. I had to sit with my back to my husband if he ate it because it was made me feel so sick. Um, I think, you know, you find... The, the simplest food that works for you. I think if you can avoid hyper-processed foods, 
but maybe there's one that maybe yogurt works for you i mean this has got if you can get plain yogurt into you this is a great food eggs plain rice so there's like a trick if you cook rice and you let it cool down it builds resistant starch which feeds your microbiome maybe a bowl of cool down rice is okay for you maybe this is something that's palatable but this is also really great at feeding your microbiome so you don't have to think that it's some fancy supplement or food really basic foods work and if you really just can't handle anything just accept that this is how it is for now then maybe go out in nature expose yourself to bacteria by just taking a walk in the park maybe there's maybe you're lucky and there's a forest nearby but if not just get into the local park they've tested people's skin the people who get outdoors more even in cities and they have more microbial diversity so just get out expose yourself to these things if there's a dog go pet a dog you know get get this other way you know do do what's right for you and you know focus on that i think you need to write a little guide for people that are, like you said, you want to do a cookbook. I feel like yeah. we need a guide for people who have the hard pregnancies because I would have loved to have known all of this then because I did have a lot of worry about, you know, I couldn't keep things down. It was so bad. You know, what, what kind of nutrition was my kid getting and what mm -hmm. kind of effect was this going to have? So just even hearing about the rice, I never even knew that it builds potatoes. up. Potatoes have the same thing. If you cook a potato and you let it cool down, you get this resistant starch, which feeds your gut bacteria. So maybe you can handle just a bland potato. <laughs> maybe, you, maybe you'll sit cradling a potato while you, you know, are feeling nauseous. I, I remembered it was horrible. And it's, it's, and, but this is what I think people need. Like, that's what I'm saying. You really need to do something like this because so many people get stuck in, you know, either giving up entirely or just going straight to those hyper-processed foods because it's what they can tolerate, not knowing that others may actually have a beneficial effect for it. So on that same topic though, and going here, when you've had this problem, we talked about the kind of epigenetics and the on and off. What is a natural timeline to switch things around when you make a change with the microbiome? Because I think just from my own personal experience with families and stuff, I think sometimes there's an expectation that this can shift really quickly that you're going to have. And yet everything I've read is that it's not the fastest process in the world to be going through here. So what is the reality about kind of timeline expectations? If we talk about changing diet to help something like eczema, where would you be looking at the patience you need to have for something like that? There's a positive, <laughs> which I'll focus on. <laughs> So the good thing is that they have done research and what you eat can change your microbiome literally from day to day. If you're eating a lot of meat, you will grow, feed the bacteria that love meat. So every day you do kind of vote for the bacteria in your gut. Um, that's a positive and that's something to be aware of that you, you can already make a difference today. You go eat some extra vegetables at dinner, great. You've already fed good bacteria and they're gonna grow. Um, if you want to turn around a health problem like eczema, this is a whole different ballgame, right? Because in the first three years, we establish our microbiome. And this becomes like the signature of what your body always wants to return to. 
So even if you're exposed to antibiotics or illness or just a junk diet when you're older, whatever, it always wants to return to this state that it formed in the very early years. So if you don't have that and you didn't start with this ideal microbiome, then you've got a challenge where you have to constantly kind of keep on it. If you already have an inflammatory condition, then unfortunately you're going to have to be one of those people that has to be pretty careful you can have your junk days i do i mean i'm human i I blow out at christmas and you know i don't worry about having a piece of cake but i do have to be mindful of what works for me and i do eat a lot of fermented foods because then at least i know that i'm regularly feeding my gut because probiotic supplements are very useful but they don't stick around in the gut. So if you take some and then you stop taking them, that's it, you know, a lot of those will just die off and then the balance will shift again. But with fermented foods, you can get a big whack of probiotics, but in a nice like spoonful of something that's really tasty and you can eat it regularly. And this will kind of keep things ticking over. That's really interesting about the gut wanting to go back. I didn't realize that it was so kind of set in its ways that way. So because some of the research I've read, I mean, does suggest that you can have some shifts through rather extreme measures sometimes um, with probiotics. But I guess we're looking still at the infancy of that, of trying to to do that there. So when we talk about how to maximize our microbiome and our children's in these first three years, mm-hmm. obviously food is crucial. And you brought up fermented foods. I'm a big fan. I wish I could get other people in my family to eat them, but it seems to be just <laughs> me. They are not a favorite, but that's okay. Um, what about, you talk about organic in the book here. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of us hear the same, yes, organic. A lot of people again agree. And again, I'm going to have to ask, for all the people that can't, because you acknowledge, and thank you for acknowledging in the book, that it's expensive and not feasible for everyone to do. So if people can't do it, what would be the key parts to maybe do? Or what are other things they can do that might help improve benefits outside of going organic? Um, I do promote organic because Pesticides can affect epigenetic expression. Also, I have concerns about how they're impacting wildlife and insects and and the future of our food. I still want food in my future and a diverse amount of food that I can choose from. I want honey. I don't want it to die away. Um, But this is not individual's responsibility. And I don't like the way the system makes people feel like it's your fault that the pesticides are killing the bees, because it's not. This is something that governments need to influence. This is industry. This is something that is much bigger than us. We do our best. And if we can, we buy organic food and we vote every time we're at the supermarket. But this isn't possible for everybody. Um, I think number one, just eat fiber. If you can't buy organic, just forget it. You know, just focus on the fact that you're getting fiber. Um, There are things that you can do by peeling the skin on some uh, vegetables or fruits or giving them a wash with some vinegar. Um, This can reduce the pesticide residues. 
there are some foods that just don't really have that much pesticide residue. And the Environmental Working Group has a great app that will tell you the top clean 15. Yes, I remember it. There's the dirty dozen and the clean 15. So maybe you focus on like, look at that clean 15 and say, you know, screw it. I'm just going to get those non-organic. I don't get organic avocados here. They're too expensive. I live in Norway. The food is extortionate. <laughs> I, I'm, I can't. Like, ugh, the prices are crazy here. Uh, so we don't buy organic avocados or anything like this because it would be ludicrous. So we have to focus on what is important, something that I'm ingesting maybe like sometimes leafy veg like spinach this is going straight out my mouth but an avocado has got a big thick skin i think as far as i'm aware they don't use large amounts of pesticides um you if you can focus on that um maybe there's one food you eat a lot of right maybe you're crazy about apples then just buy organic apples and forget everything else because it's being because everything else is changing all the time in your diet during the week but uh, I don't know. I think I don't like to put pressure on people. I want to inform you. And this is something I tell my kid actually all the time. Maybe I'm telling her something. I say, this is just information. Now you take it and you choose what you do with it. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm providing the information, but you are in charge of your life and you get to decide now. So you maybe take this information and say, oh, I can do that. Or, okay, I can't do that. I'm going to do the environmental working groups list. Or, you know, screw this. I can't do any of it. I just need to, if I can even get some vegetables, I'd be really grateful. And then just do that. Get fiber. Don't worry about it. There's many things impacting your microbiome, how much you move, how much you're in nature, your stress levels. You know, and if it's going to really freak you out and stress you because of the cost, don't do it. Yeah. Focus on other things. Now, I have to ask about one area of food quickly before we go on, which is meat, mm -hmm. because that is one where I know there's a big focus on organic vegetables, everything. Maybe what I'm reading is wrong, but I feel like the effects of factory farmed meat, et cetera, has a worse impact than the other on our, our gut and, and animal welfare. I mean, if we want to go, that's a whole other topic there as well. Mm -hmm. The environment, what animal welfare, whatnot. But what is the true effect, if you can summarize for us, of meat on our system and particularly a difference? Is there a difference between, you know, your grocery store meat, your organic meat, your grass-fed meat, all these different things that come out that can have wildly different costs. What's happening there for the microbiome? I mean, the biggest concern with uh, factory farmed meat is uh, antibiotic use. I mean, this is, I think, much more of a problem in America. I don't know what the, the it happens in Canada, but in Europe, it's more regulated. Um, but the antibiotic use in animal farming, in industrial animal farming, right, where they're using antibiotics to fatten animals up, it's used as a method of achieving something, not a cure for an illness. This is leading to this antibiotic resistance around the world. There's more antibiotics used in farming than in curing any people in the world of disease. It's all being pumped into them. Then we're eating this tiny residual amounts through the meat, and this is impacting our gut. It's impacting diseases. I think for us, 
again, I, I feel fortunate in Norway, we have the lowest rate of antibiotic use in animals and even in normal farming, you know. Um, so we're happy to choose just Norwegian meat, you know. Um, I don't stress about it being organic here. It's the farming standards are quite good. But if I had to choose, I mean, especially at home in Ireland, I, I would choose to not eat the meat and eat an egg if I can get a free range egg or something. And then I would rather have something else, a tin of sardines. You know, if you really want to get that protein or something, go for a tin of sardines. The cheapest fish, these small tins of uh, sardines or mackerel, these are the healthiest because of the, the chain of effect of the bigger fish eating the smaller fish and accumulating these toxins in the sea. So get a cheap tin of sardines and that can be... I mean, not everyone likes sardines, right? This is a hard sell. <laughs> but um, yeah, with meat, I would I would rather avoid it and then treat meat like a sort of like a dessert, like a treat, right? That we have a small piece of grass-fed raised um, meat, but very occasionally, and we divide it amongst the three of us. We don't kind of we have like a small handful rather than having a big steak. Everybody's getting a small piece. It's not the centerpiece of a meal for us anyway. I always try to fill the plate with mostly plant-based foods and then have like fish or meat or eggs as like a side part because we don't need huge amounts. Mm -hmm. So, and also if you're vegetarian or whatever, you can be fine without it anyway, you know? Yeah, exactly. No, thank you. That answers it because I've always wondered, you know, you hear such conflicting evidence on the meat because it's, you know, some people say that the nutritional value of one versus the other is no different, but that doesn't get into all these other issues as well, right? Just because the protein amount might be the same doesn't mean the actual nutritional profile is the same. So thank Food you. is so much more than these basic things like carbs, proteins, fats. This is so reductionist to say that food is just these three things. And I find this extraordinary. And I maybe, you know, Michael Pollan, Yes, you know the author? I mean, he really talks about this. There's so much more to food than three elements. There are so many things in food we don't even know, and we have no idea how they are impacting our health. We don't know. I read something last night, which was extraordinary. Uh, I'm going to share because it blew my mind. I'm reading a book called Lifespan. And uh, he was talking about hormesis, you know, where you're exposed to something negative to your system. And this can have actually a rejuvenating effect because it spurs your body to repair itself. Um, a vegetarian, so we talk about essential amino acids. This blew my mind last night. He was saying that when we eat vegetarian sometimes uh, and we don't get these amino acids that are essential for meat, it actually has this hormesis effect that the body says, oh no, I didn't get that from the meat this today. Uh, so I better switch on this hormesis effect and I better sort of slow down, repair and rejuvenate my body because now we're in this kind of mini crisis. It's like not a damaging crisis. It's like a, a mini one, which can be really beneficial. And this blew my mind. I had no idea about this before. That's great. You know, you always hear that do one day a week vegetarian or something or two yeah. days a week. And it's like, I've always heard it from respective environmental impacts, everything like that. But 
that I've got a new argument against my husband for this one now. So we You are welcome. <laughs> Thank you. So we'll be cited in the divorce. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're good. Um we have so much. I know we're coming up on time. I want to switch gears a bit because I think the food is really covered here. I want to talk about cleanliness because you talk about cleanliness in the book. And contrary to what I think most people think about, we think of cleanliness as good that we have. And you can explain it better than I, but this whole idea of it actually being curvilinear that, you know, yes, certain levels of cleanliness have helped us overcome certain diseases, problems, etc. However, we can be too clean. And what effect does this have? What is too clean? And why does this matter for the microbiome? Actually, you remind me when I heard recently that it wasn't that long ago that somebody came up with the theory that you should wash your hands when performing surgery. And this was really like out there at the time. And people alienated the person who suggested this. They thought, you are crazy. What influence could that possibly have on the procedure? And uh, later, obviously, they realized, oh, actually quite a lot. Um, but I think we've gone from that extreme that uh, we do nothing. And then now we're over cleaning. And I think that it's because people have been sold a lie there was the hygiene hypothesis, which originally was thought to mean that uh, if you were exposed to um, colds and flus and all these illnesses from your siblings, that this would train your immune system. But dirt was bad, you know. Um, Later, they realized that actually the impact was being exposed to dirt from your siblings was what impacted the, the lower rates of asthma and eczema in kids. And that flu in children can actually weaken their lungs and lead to asthma later on. So finally, now they're calling it, they're switching the name. They kept the name for a while, the hygiene hypothesis, which is really confusing for everybody. You're changing the meaning, but keeping the name. So now they're calling it the old friends hypothesis, which means being exposed to these old friendly bacteria that we have evolved with. Uh, we don't need to clean as much as we do. We do not need to wash our baby after they're born. Leave them, leave them uh, coated in their vernix. I know it's not cute. I know it can be quite blah. Um, but leave them. I remember my daughter being born in like little patches of blood. And I mean, it wasn't cute. Those pictures, and only a mother could love those pictures of the early, the early hours, you know, it looks smeared. Um, but that is what protects the child from the growth of bad bacteria on the skin. So this is designed by a wonderful system to protect children in the early days from infections and diseases. Um, don't wash away all the good bacteria. You've just pushed them out, leave it on them, you know, and try and resist washing them for as long as you can. I mean, we waited two weeks. Uh, to give her a bath and then when we did we just washed her in some warm water just gently soaked her and to this day I am still quite uh, a keen fan of having a, a filthy child you know I'm <laughs> I think she should be just left get mucky I don't wash her that much and when I do it's just with water just 
dunk her in the bath, you know, in time, it kind of all comes off, you know, let her play in there. Um, I don't wash her hair with shampoo. I've never used shampoo. Her hair's fine. She looks fine. And this is something that everybody around me says, wow, her hair looks great. It's never been washed with shampoo. And of course, because we evolved without these things. Human nature wasn't around for so long. And then suddenly it was like, oh, holy crap, we've been missing shampoo all this time. It's stripping the, the essential oils from our hair, from our skin. Did you know that the, the bacteria under your armpits feed on your oils in your skin and that's what keeps them healthy? And then if they don't get those oils, they die. And then the bad guys come and they make you smell. And you know, it's really like, it's so hard to go back after yeah. we've done this. So let your kid be dirty. Just let them run wild, play in the muck. Uh, that's the kind of dirt. I mean, obviously not cat poo or, you know, this kind of stuff. And wash your hands before you eat. Absolutely. We have this policy also. She's not allowed to eat her food without washing her hands first. But be relaxed about these things. And in my house, I know we didn't get to, to cover these like uh, products, you know, eco products. I don't use eco products either because I'm too lazy to go buy the fancy stuff. I wash my house with vinegar and um, baking soda. And my house smells a bit like fish and chips for a while. <laughs> <laughs> After I've mopped the floor, it's a little bit like a chipper. But I promise it goes away really quickly. And it's like, I, I don't because... Well, again, like I got to say, the prices in Norway are extortionate for anything. Can you imagine what a health shop costs here? Yeah. Um, so it's like we just use, I, I just lob in white vinegar into yeah. the mop buckets. And this is quite effective. I don't, okay, let, like if I'm preparing chicken, raw chicken, I, I kind of do treat like a biohazard. This is something <laughs> I'm... It happened when I was pregnant. I became really obsessed with wanting to kind of get utensils and wear a hazmat suit, these <laughs> kind of things. So chicken, I'm still a little bit obsessive about careful. I really scrub, I boil the water and I clean the board afterwards. This is my 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 thing. But everything else I'm quite free with. And I let, let the dirt be free. I love that. And I love that you mentioned in the book that you only bathe your daughter once a week because I've been doing that for, you know, my daughter's 10. So pretty much 10 years about, um, I think unless even she was younger, I, I would say that's optimistic for us throughout periods. My daughter for a while loved the bath. So that was harder to get her, you know, she would just want to be in it. So we did it, but again, no soap and everything. So yeah, you want to be in playing with water for a while knock yourself out um my I let son her get very dirty in the summer sorry but and then when it's time to go back to school I'm like okay we gotta wash you because they're gonna call child <laughs> services you know we've got she, she can't go back like this and we've got time for like a uh, we have a summer good scrub and then like a after vacation so yeah and that's and I think that's great it's and that's what I find with the cleaning products I was going to mention that yeah you do have all the ideas in the book for do it yourself I've found you know we live in the country so we have a septic system and it's been really a septic system in a well and it's amazing because going back to that you become so aware of the products and what goes in and we're forced to look at how do you keep this system healthy and because you need your septic system healthy trust me you really don't want that going on you <laughs> and it is all these different eco products, vinegar is, I buy it by the big 
whenever it's on sale, the big amount there, I just load up on it. And, you know, so much of this stuff actually works just as well. And like you, I will admit raw chicken is something we are, I, that has to be just everything sanitized and scrubbed to (laughs) mentally. I can't take it. That's not there. I can't look at that. Um, But it is, it's something that is relatively easy and cheap enough to do. And you know what does my bathroom sparkle the way it would if I used bleach every time? No, I'll be honest. It really doesn't, but I'm also okay with that. It's clean. And I know it's clean. And I think that's something we have. I I think so much of this with the cleanliness comes down to our society's idea of equating clean with white, pristine. Um, There's a look to it. And the look is almost more important than the reality of what it is. And I think that affects our psyches so much. We've been so conditioned to view cleanliness as godliness, as the saying goes in. I think that's, I'm not religious, so I don't know. But I think I've heard that one. And that equating of cleanliness is something that is so crucial to just everything. And it's, of course, there's elements of, you know, tidiness, right? Because when you're living in clutter, that can be stressful psychologically. I like a tidy house. I I like it. I don't always achieve it, but I like a tidy house. You know, the kitchen counter, you know, it starts building up with Lego and then the post comes in and, and then all oh, this clutter. But I'm not concerned about the wiping of the counter. Yeah. I just want the stuff off the counter and also like who has time and when we're we're giving time to our kids and and our work and our life I mean I've had to really face this recently when I've been uh, promoting the book because once my my daughter gets home from school at one that's the end of my work day well earlier because I got to go pick her up schools are open here by the way this is why it's uh (laughs) um life's pretty normal um in Norway right now and so when I pick her up that's it that's game over and I then I'm going to spend time with her she's got to you know let out all the feelings from the day and then I've got to think about feeding her and then I'm going to think about making the dinner and then the dog wants to play and then I, I I've had to really just say oh yeah the house is a mess you know but you know this is going to be a great growth period for me and learning to be okay with that because who who's really judging me except for myself Yeah. And you know what? Anyone that is judging you for your house is clearly needing a new hobby because, you know, we talk about finding purpose earlier with the bacteria finding purpose. People who judge others for their cleanliness need a new purpose. They're looking for it and they're lacking it. And so maybe just feel like, you know what? I'm giving you purpose right now. That's my job in life is to let you feel purposeful by judging my environment. So Don't most people feel relieved, you know, when they see their friend's house a mess. I think they kind of walk in and think, oh, thank God, like, it's not just me. Right. I feel it's, I feel like that. It's a uh, relief. It is. Okay. I'm so I know. Do you have time to go a bit over? I've kept oh, yeah, you. Okay, good. All right. Because we can't leave without talking about breastfeeding. Yes. Um, microbiome. This is the As far as I've read, we talked about the birth having that massive impact on the initial microbiome, but breastfeeding is a huge component to establishing the microbiome during those first three years. So can you tell us why is it so important? What is, what should parent 
parents because it could be chest feeding. I should be saying chest feeding, not breastfeeding. But in terms of the effect that we have on the breast milk production and the passing of this beneficial probiotics, why is it important? And what can people do themselves to maximize? Is it the same advice of organic and everything? Is that affecting the breast milk or is there something extra different? And then just to add to your, you know, give you a big long list of questions here. What about when people can't breastfeed? What, and I know you cover all this in the book. So there is always the consideration that it's not for everyone, whether you can't or choose not to, but what are the main things that people need to take home from that with respect to the microbiome? Yeah, I appreciate that this is is something that really can be quite um, difficult to talk about because some people don't want to, some people can't. There are so many emotions involved because of this um, these feelings. So we do try to talk and make sure that everybody gets a fair. And what I like to say is I see this as information. My job is to provide the information and then you get to make the choice. I'm only here as like a, 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 a library book. You know, I'm just here as an information. So for me, it was really important that also that it's like this informed consent. You make your decision knowing everything before you do, because how can you say you don't want to unless you're absolutely sure that you know everything that it does? And then if you do and you don't, one of my best friends didn't breastfeed and she knew and she was fine. And she's like one of the best mothers I know. It has no impact on whether you're a good parent or not. You know, there's some pretty shitty parents who are breastfeeders. You know, it's not a, like we shouldn't we shouldn't make this association. It's just information on feeding. OK, it's not a, a defining quality as a parent. So I tried to give all the background of what is breast milk, what are the benefits and what does it do? So breast milk is like a probiotic drink, right, for your baby. It's providing something like 700 types of bacteria. So it's increasing microbial diversity, but it also comes ready-made with the fiber to feed the bacteria because it's the fiber that feeds the bacteria, then they digest it, and then they make these short-chain fatty acids. And it's these guys that do all the good work. Um, they also provide the beautiful smell and fragrance that comes from vomit. <laughs> so <laughs> they have many purposes in life. So the thing is with breastfeeding, um, it's a great gift if you can do it. I understand this is the challenge. It's not, I, I remember talking to a lactation consultant and I said, I thought it was supposed to be natural that you just knew how to do it. Turns out, no. You know, you're supposed to be in a community of women helping you who have years of experience and guidance. There's supposed to be a pile of people around you helping you latch your child and helping you throughout the whole thing, holding your child, helping you sleep. You're not supposed to do it alone. And that's what really can crush parents. Um, for me, we struggled. We, I say we. I couldn't latch my child. Um, she was born at home. I was really fortunate to have a home birth because I was in Amsterdam. It was very safe and a great environment, um, very well supported. And the hospital was really close by. So that went fine. She came out. I tried to latch her. It looked like it was working. Uh, she seemed okay. Then obviously they weighed her. They noticed she was losing weight, but more than the usual amount. So the pressure was on. The midwife started to basically panic and freak out 
and tell us that they were going to take her from us and bring her to the hospital and formula feed her. And I was like, this is not part of my plan. My plan is like, I'm thinking the microbiome. I'm thinking everything that we have planned. I've just put all this work into pregnancy and you're going to, no, you're not going to decide this. So we called in a helper from the Lesh League. She came to my house um, she tried to help me latch her, but she still just couldn't latch. So then she said, okay, right, forget that right now. You go get a pump. So she looked at my husband and she's like, on your bike, literally, like <laughs> Amsterdam, racing through on this old bike. He had to go get one of these industrial hospital pumps because she said that the smaller pumps, and people need to know this, are not very effective. And at the beginning, you want to get that pumping going. You want to get the milk supply. So if you're just with some hand pump or like a small pump, you're not going to get enough milk. So I had to go get one of these like, you know, these machines that really like extract every drop. So she was wonderful. She sat with me and she asked me this. Um, I was really stressed. You know, I was panicking, freaked out. My new baby. And she said, uh, oh, tell me about how you met your husband. I was like, um, okay. And then I told her the story. <laughs> and what I didn't realize is at the same time, milk was flooding out of me because while I was telling this nice romantic story, all my oxytocin levels rose and the milk poured out of me. It turns out this is her trick, right? When she's trying to help you. So we, we pumped. Um, I sat there with the pump at night and all day and my husband syringe fed our daughter. We tried various lactation consultants they all were so negative. They all had very limited kind of outlook and just said, oh, she's not getting it. And then we found out she had a tongue tie. So this was dealt with. Great. My husband actually also has a tongue tie and can't uh, stick his tongue out. We discovered this afterwards. It's his fault. <laughs> so It's always so then, nice not to blame yourself, right? Yeah, like, no, nope, that's you. That's you. Yep. So then, so we did this, but then it, it still didn't work. And we we're like, what? This is supposed to be the magic solution. She's supposed to just, you know, that's it. Pop on now. Everything's fixed. Uh, we got more lactation consultants that came. They all said, oh, I'm so sorry, but, you know, your daughter's developed a habit now. And my husband was like, are you serious? You're telling me that she's a habit of a lifetime at five weeks old? You're writing her off after five weeks? And then... Um, so I asked a friend and she said, well, there's one other person and she's really great. I said, okay, I, I wrote, I texted her and I was like crying while I was texting her, please come and help me. You know, and she rolled up on a bike outside my house. She came into the house and uh, she looked and I explained the situation and she's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and just show me how you feed. And I was trying. And then she was like, oh yeah, yeah, sure, I see it. <laughs> Turns out that when the baby is in the womb, babies practice swallowing, right? They're drinking the amniotic fluid. If you have a tongue tie, you don't get to practice the correct movement, which will impact the child's ability to latch even after the tongue tie has been fixed because they don't know how to move their tongue. So she has this magic technique, which she calls the concord. She just got my nipple, twist, like pointed it down, popped my daughter on and she latched drank and never got off like again for years that was it <laughs> we established that moment and it was just like that and that blew me away that this information needs to be everywhere yeah just just flipping your nipple down like a concord is the secret to this 
that the child then can latch on. I thought this woman is like, it's to be held out like a a booby god. You know, she's going to go out there and share this with the world. To all the parents frustrated, struggling. I mean, I for one think that lactation consultants should be part of healthcare. They shouldn't be a private uh, privilege. It should be something that everybody gets help with. I know that Lesh League are great at helping people, but yeah, it was, I mean, there are so many extraordinary things with breast milk. So like, there's one thing, I love this word, enteromammary um, immune system. It's my favorite word now, entero, <laughs> enteromammary immune system is when your child is sick and then they suck on the boob and then the the germs, the, the virus or bacteria, whatever it is they have, signal into the breast of the mother and then the mother's body makes antibodies to fight the child's illness for them. We provide so many services for our kids in that way. Like, and then, so your child obviously has a, a lower risk of all sorts of infections and even uh, childhood cancers if they can breastfeed. So, I mean, I, there's so many benefits, you know, in this. Um, but like you say, it's not possible. And also it's not a valid choice for some people. It's, there's many reasons why people don't want to. And I think that should be respected. And so we have put together a list of things to look out for in a formula. So you want to make sure that they have DHA and ARA in the formula. These are really essential brain fats. You want to make sure that they have a probiotic and a prebiotic fiber. And if you can find a hydrolyzed formula where they've already broken down the cow's milk uh, protein, this can really help reduce the risk of allergies. Avoid soy formulas. There is some research that a soy formula can seem to affect baby's development. Soy in itself as an adult is a a perfectly fine food, but for some reason, a soy formula seems to have an impact on development. So if you can avoid soy formula, um, that would be a great choice. That is so good because it is, it's so important that everyone feels like they have an answer here for them, right? Because having a healthy microbiome, having a healthy child, even though in so many ways because of society and everything, it is akin to having privilege to be able to do certain things, but it really shouldn't be. And so the more we can break down those privilege barriers, the better it is for everyone. So everybody had, sorry, if everybody had a fair access, a fair system, and then they had the information and then they could make their own decision based on what they want and what's Mm -hmm. right for their family and not just because well I don't get maternity leave or I don't have support or you know all these things yeah I would love that it would be and and to know kind of what you've brought up is you know because even in a fair system you're going to have going back to the discussion of morning sickness women who can't take in a lot at that time so having the information of okay this doesn't work this is a good alternative. You mm-hmm. don't have access to organic. This is the good alternative. And all these things that come up that, you know, most of the time we're fed what's quote unquote best. And there's no discussion outside that. So I see why there's such a resistance to this kind of information from people because the messaging has for so long been, if you don't do this, well, I guess that's it. You've just screwed your child for life. So good luck and goodbye. And 
clearly that's not the case. Clearly our system is not so set, even though apparently our microbiome wants to go back to those first three years all the time. But as you said, if you're conscientious about it, you can keep veering it away and veering it away and veering it away as you can. So before we close, and I thank you so much for all of this information, but what is the one take-home message you would give to pregnant women who are listening right now? Mm, I mean, I have this like Michael Pollan quote that I live by. It's like this eat food. I think we change it to like eat fresh food, mostly plants and, you know, not too much or eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And I think that's really important. Don't overeat because this is also quite stressful to the body. Um, just eat what makes you feel satisfied. Uh, you don't need to eat for two when you're pregnant and you only need a tiny bit of extra calories in the third trimester. And it's it's something like the equivalent of an apple. You know, it's quite small. Um, eat fiber. So eat just fresh food, whatever you can find and whatever you like, you know, just whatever vegetables and fruits that work for you, whole grains, you know, go for these things. Or like I said, potatoes, cool it down, rice, cool it down and eat that. And then, uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, that's, that's my it. best advice. That's and I love it because it's simple and it is something that most people can do. So thank you so much, Michelle. This has been so wonderful. Can you let people know we're going to have in the show notes, where can people find you? Where is the book available? Um, I know you have a website as well that's associated with the book that people can get even more information and all of a lot of this information in terms of cleaning products, whatnot on. Um can you share all that with us so that people know where to find you? So we have a website called growhealthybabies.com and we actually give away the microbiome chapter for free. So uh, parents can like dig into that. See, but I felt like this was so important that I wanted everyone to have it, even if you didn't read the book. So this is for free. Um, you can find all the links to where to buy the book. I mean, it's in the usual places. It's on Amazon, Book Depository, all these usual bookshops. Um, there's a Kindle version. The audiobook should be up by now. Um, I myself am the voice of the audiobook. Um, that's available. Uh, there are references on the website, and also there are links. If you read the book, you get all the links to all of these recommended uh, sites and and recommendations for products or what to do instead of we, we've tried to put everything up on the website so that people have access to it and they can download the information themselves and save them as lists um but yeah that's that's it thank you so much once again for being here this has been enlightening and i hope everyone can take as you said this information like library and do with it what they will even if it happens to be absolutely nothing so take it it'll percolate in your brain at least and we never know how that later comes out to impact how we think or approach new situations so thank you so much michelle and thank you for having me oh thank you once again and like i said everyone you'll be able to see all this stuff in the show notes but go to growhealthybabies.com you can check out that chapter all the information and find the book wherever you find your books Oh, I'm on Instagram. I'm not oh. really very active. I don't use Facebook, but I'm on Instagram. But I was just thinking, I post recipes up there, try to get like simple foods. But also there's a video of my birth, which um, I thought was really useful for parents to see how to focus and that you can get through birth 
and 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 calm yourself so not the gory stuff of the birth this is very not this is a very nice calm moment but um, i'm trying to to put as much up as possible and share what what i can and there's tidbits of information going up all the time so what's the instagram handle for people grow healthy babies yeah perfect all right thank you so you can find instagram website book where you get your books thank you so much michelle once again for being here today thank you That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Join me again next week as I welcome back Dr. Levita D'Souza for a conversation with me about what it is that makes up an infant sleep problem. After all, it seems like every baby born today has one. So what on earth are they talking about? And what do we really need to know about our infant sleep? So join me next week for that. And in the meantime, happy parenting.